Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning service to you each and every week. Whether you're a longtime follower of Christ or just beginning to explore who Jesus is, we invite you to join us as we dive deep into God's Word and what He has to teach us today. So listen in as we jump into what God has in store. We thought we'd make Brandon and Bridget pull double duty this morning and not only be the official welcoming face of the Rolling Hills Nashville West Campus, but also an interview that we get to hear a little bit more about them today. I'm super excited. Y'all already know the questions, but I reserve the right to throw you a curveball. You know, you are prepared. Okay, um, okay so just really quickly, how long have you guys been married? Uh, we've been married 14 years. 14 years. Is That's yeah. correct? Yes. That's correct. Okay, good deal. I did give her the option of saying, okay, how did you guys meet? So we actually met in high school, our senior year. We had similar friend groups, but had never just like our paths had never crossed. Um, I knew who she was, but she was way out of my league, so I was never going to approach her. Um, But we actually met, so she was an officer for um, FCA, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, um, in Denton, Texas. And uh, I wasn't involved in that, but I was a worship leader for my youth group at our church, which some of you probably just got shocked by that if you know me. Yeah, yeah, well, not anymore. But but, uh, so anyway, so I was invited by someone else to come lead worship worship at this FCA meeting. And so um, I did, and Bridget was there. She was actually the one who taught the message, um, and I led worship. Um, And so we, like, like just met, talked, you know, whatever. Um, But then the next day... Um, I guess she got my phone number from somebody. She shot me a text and was like, hey, we should hang out sometime. And I was like, what? <laughs> now, we, we have some different perspectives on why she sent that text message. She says it was because I was leading worship and, you know, she saw like, oh, this is like, this is a godly guy. Like, you know, um, I think she overheard me playing some John Mayer before. <laughs> I was leading worship, and that's what sealed You kind of just low-key told us how old you guys are in the moment. Did you hear it? Because they had text messaging in high school. I did not. Um, and also, John My- Mayer was yeah. a thing. He was not around back then, so we, we know. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, our phones only had text messaging on our Nokia yes. brick phones, but okay. yes. And Snake. It had the game yes, Snake. Yes, awesome. That's right. Okay. <laughs> that's great. All right. In terms of marriage, um, tell me the greatest joy, the greatest challenge. Okay, so the greatest joys are, well, he's already kind of said it. We basically have grown up together since we started dating in high school. And so we've just always been in each other's quarter, always had each other's back. We've gotten to do life together, and it's just the greatest thing to have each other there, um, getting, you know, careers and college and babies and all of it, just having um, each other as each other's cheerleader. And he's just really funny and just brings joy everywhere. So it's a joy to be married to him. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I get the challenge. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, obviously in any marriage, there's, there's tons of different conflicts for all kinds of different reasons at different times. But I think for, for me, as we thought about this question, 
the real underlying challenge is how how do you die to yourself every single day? Because as believers, right, you know, we receive the Holy Spirit and we have the uh, fruit of the Spirit, but it doesn't mean we are living that every day if we're not dying to ourselves. And so when we don't do that, selfishness just immediately, our sin nature creeps right back in um, and it becomes about us. And that's where all the conflict, honestly, any, for any of it, all comes from. Um, and so I think the biggest challenge is just how do we grow in that um, so that, yeah, we can be more like Jesus. All right, that's a segue. How do you keep Christ in the center of life and marriage? Um, so I think the, so the answer that, that we can, we started when we were thinking about this question, we were like, oh, like, what are the things, you know, we do? We would go to church and we read the Bible and we have devos with our kids and, you know, we could go through these things. But as we started to think about it, it's, it's really not about the things you do unless that turns into who you are. If it doesn't become being, um, and so when we started to really look at like when we're being Christ-like, it's it's things like Bridget has seen me at my best, and she's seen me at my absolute worst and my weakest, and she still loves me anyway, and and that is the most Christ-like thing, um, you know, that we see in um, our marriage, and that's how I think we keep Jesus at the center. It's us trying to be who Jesus is, and so her showing me that unconditional love, and then you know. Um, vice versa. I've seen her at her best and then maybe one day at her worst. I haven't yet. We'll see. Um, but when that day comes, I will love her unconditionally. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you guys. I appreciate that. Give Brandon and Bridget a hand. I'm glad you guys are here. During the first service, I diverted my attention over here to where my high school daughters sit. Um, and I told them that it's possible to meet um, the love of your life and your partner forever in high school, but not probable. So study hard. Okay. Focus on the main thing. I am thrilled that you guys are here and, and that we get to be a, a part of this whole service, this idea of what it means to be a people who live and love. And, and while we will fully recognize and, and state that marriage is an on-ramp and it is an environment and it's an illustration for the way that we are supposed to walk and love, particularly in what he talked about with being an unconditional Christ follower who loves others, it's not the only environment. And so this isn't a message, this isn't a series, this isn't an opportunity for anybody who is single currently or planning, like, it's not an opportunity for us to tune out and back off and think that this passage of scripture or this particular series is not for us and about us because ultimately as believers in Jesus Christ, we are called to be the love environment that everyone in this room and everyone outside of this room gets a picture of how much Christ loves his church. And that'll be on full display this morning as we engage scripture together. The question that we're asking asking this morning is, where can I find real love? And the idea of finding real love, the idea of finding happily ever after, the idea of landing on whatever that looked like depends on what your definition of that word is. So you want to go back to last week when we talked about an actual descriptor of what love is and the way that it should be defined and described, that matters. Because where can you find real love? Quote, I can give you a laundry list of places where you can find not real love. I can give you a long, long list, and the world is happy to provide it and to present it and to twist it in a way to make you think that it's real love, when in fact it's not real love. It matters what it is that you're looking for, and it matters where you look. So, in the first service, I diverted my attention over there to my high school girls, and I said, see, they met in a ministry, right? <laughs> That's a great place to go and meet that forever. Like, right? We talk about it matters what you're looking for, 
and also where you look. Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 1, says this, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children. We could stop right there and, and talk about that phrase for the rest of the morning, because this whole idea of us being God's dearly loved children only comes when we are born again in a relationship with Jesus Christ, where we understand that we are, in fact, like Brandon mentioned, dirty, rotten sinners, like living our lives in that, and yet, while we were still in that frame, God loved us enough to send Christ to die for us, and he's the pathway by which we get to be called God's children. It is a marvel for us, and it ought to stop us dead in our tracks to think on the daily that somehow or another, the, gra the great and mighty creator of this universe, everything in the cosmos, all-powerful God on high, chooses to love us and allow us to call him dad. Like that's the relationship we want. And so in response to that, this whole picture of we are to follow God's example, how as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, that whole series, live in love, walk in love, be illustrations of that love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. All biblical love points us directly to the idea of sacrifice. And we said it last week, and we said it the week before, and I'll probably say it again next Sunday, that the Bible paints for us a picture of what the greatest kind of love is when it says, Jesus, John chapter 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his spouse, because we're talking about marriage. No, that he laid on his life for his friends. The picture of love that we ought to celebrate and the picture of love that we ought to talk about and the picture of love that we ought to dive into study has to do with people being sacrificial and serving others. I love that word greater because it's the same word that Jesus uses in another context when he tells his disciples, hey, you like these miracles that I'm doing? Oh yeah, you guys are going to do these exact same things and even greater things than these. I can imagine what the disciples thought when they saw that moment. You're like, what? There is no way we're going to do anything greater than you. And if you look at one definition of the idea of greater, bigger, more valuable, then yeah, it sounds crazy to think that you and I could do anything greater than Jesus, but that word means longer. It means longer lasting. And so Jesus, who walked this green earth for three years, calling disciples and ultimately died for the sins of a fallen humanity and being resurrected to life and ascended back into heaven, Peter's ministry lasted 35 years. Greater? Definitely longer. And that's what you and I are called to. And so we celebrate the, the marriages in the room that have lasted. But not only that, the commitments that we've made to Christ that have lasted. Not just a husband and wife who've celebrated 50 years, but what about a faithful servant in the life of the church and in the body of Christ, faithfully inviting her neighbors to church for 50 plus years? We want to celebrate the idea of sacrificial love in our lives. Now we talk about when we get to the idea of marriage, and we're going to focus a little bit more acutely on that today, and it's important for all of us to know and understand and pay attention to what that means. And I will just say that this ought to come with a little bit of a disclaimer, because today's content is a little less G-rated than some of the other weeks of what we've talked about. And so some of you are like, oh, let me cover my ears. That's okay. We won't judge. We're going to dive into some things that Scripture says for us, because the great God of this universe— who invites us to call him father and who tells us that we are dearly loved children, he has set very narrow boundaries for love and marriage. Namely, sexual intimacy. Whew, it's hard to say the word sexual in front of a whole lot of people. Okay, but I did it. Whew. Man up. Okay, here we go. <laughs> namely, that sexual intimacy 
is to be preserved for and provided for in the context of a biblical marriage and a biblical marriage only. And the problem with the way that the world has provided that for us and entertained us with that is the idea that it's free and that it's your choice and that anybody ought to be anywhere having whatever they want to with whatever and whomever they want to at any time because it's your right and it's your choice and this is good for you. There is a beauty in both situational and also lifelong celibacy. And it talks about that in both Testaments, Old and New, that there is a picture of the idea of sexual intimacy between one man and one woman for life being reserved for marriage. Proverbs 5 says this, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. And if you think that's a metaphor for water, you're wrong. It's about physical intimacy because later on he says, why my son be intoxicated with another man's wife? or another man's future wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines your paths, and he desires us to live a life of love and a life of purity that scripture explains to us. There is an understood logic from both Old and New Testaments in all of scripture that sex before marriage or outside of marriage is included under the giant umbrella of sexual immorality. And the problem is that somehow or another, the prevailing ethic in the life of the church, the big C church, the long-term historical church, has often been one of judgment on people who believe or practice something that's different. I grew up in the middle of what's now being referred to as purity culture, and our youth leaders just wanted us to sign on the dotted line saying that we would wait until marriage. And there was a lot of really good intentions, but a lot of also really misplaced shame put on a whole generation of kids who couldn't do the right things and thereby felt like God couldn't love them in the right way. And it was hard. And most of it, and I stand up here as a dude who grew up in that, realizing that most of the blame and most of the shame was put on the girls in our group. And it's a hard part of the culture that's targeted women. And here's the deal. The way of the church, the way that it handled it in those moments, doesn't alter the morality of it for us. Christ came to forgive sin, not excuse sin but to forgive the things that we realize are not his best plan for us. He set narrow boundaries within marriage as a good gift. And the idea about boundaries, and I say this as a parent, I also say it as a dog owner. Boundaries don't limit our freedom. They protect us and our futures. Who's more free? The dog that plays in his backyard that's fenced in or the one that gets loose and hit by a car. Boundaries don't limit our freedom. They actually protect us and our future. And so when we look at scripture and the fact that God has a sign, and we just sang a song telling him that we're going to take him at his word, that we're going to believe what he says and believe why it's important and tell him that regardless of what the world says and regardless of the direction that the world points us, we're going to trust him. There's a concept today in the world that's alive and well. It's called progressive Christianity, and I'm not here to judge any of those things, but the idea of the word progressive kind of makes you think we're making progress. 
And it kind of makes you think we're doing a good thing. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what progressive Christianity tells us is that any sort of fundamental faith in any boundary that the Scripture has set is somehow not what Scripture says and not good for us. Augustine, I quote him often because this matters so much and it's defined a lot of my ministry, says this. If we believe only the things that we like about the gospel— not just Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, but really everything that's in these. If we believe only the things that we like about this word, only the things that match our feelings, only the things that match our culture, only the things that match what the world says and our expressions of it, if we believe only what we like or only what's easy or only what's comfortable or only what feels good about this word and reject the things that we don't like or that don't feel good or that are hard for us, then it's not the word that we believe, it's ourselves. What God doesn't need is a marketing plan. He doesn't need us to be PR. He doesn't need us to make this easier. He doesn't need us to hide the boundaries, hide the limits, hide the rules, hide the expressions of it so that somehow he'll seem better to the world. What he needs is a people who will faithfully follow it and then not judge other people when they don't. Because ultimately, what we've been on is a really big cycle. When biblical Christianity stands over here in judgment of progressive Christianity or any other sort of Christianity that doesn't believe the same things that we believe about Jesus and Christianity, when biblical Christianity stands in judgment over anything that's going on in the world, it's an invitation for them to rebel. And when they rebel, what the fundamental Christians do is they get even madder and more afraid of the world slipping away, and they respond with more judgment. It's the most vicious of cycles. And Christ is in the middle of it, holding both compassion and conviction, and inviting us to do the same. Boundaries, the way that God prescribed it, they don't limit our freedom. They protect us and it. So often I've thought this and I've prayed this about my kids that one day they wouldn't be people who grew up and engage in what's called serial monogamy. Monogamy sounds great, right? But serial monogamy is like, oh, I love you. Let's be physically intimate. We're going to break up. Oh, I love you. Let's be physically intimate. I'm going to break up. Oh, I love you. Let's be physically intimate. I'm, and one relationship after another in a long string of brokenness as they finally arrive at what they feel like is there forever and it's painful. I don't pray for and desire to have kids who stand in front of a spouse one day to make a promise in front of God and their whole family that are physically pure. That's great. But what I really hope and pray for is that they're emotionally pure and that they haven't just gone out saying, I love you to anyone and anything in preparation for that moment and that there's not this long string of luggage in their wake as they stand up that day. But if they do, you know what? We're going to love them and forgive them and help them walk through it. But there's a desire for that purity and that intimacy, and it comes from a father who loves us and wants what's best for us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7.35, I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way 
in undivided devotion to the Lord. And if you want to couch this context of this passage of Scripture in its rightful place, this whole chapter, you can go back and read 1 Corinthians 7, is about the value of singleness. We're not just celebrating the idea of God not providing boundaries in marriage. We're celebrating the idea of the fact that he's provided it for all of us. He talks to unmarried people and says, it's good for you to be this way because you can have an undivided heart for the Lord. But somebody else is concerned about the affairs of the world and the affairs of their spouse. You can focus solely on Jesus. And I'll tell you, there's a fella, he's in our city. He's an LPC, licensed professional counselor. Maybe that's the abbreviation. His name is Peter Valk. And he says this, God made each of us for intimacy. If you're married in the room, he, he created you for intimacy with that spouse. If you're unmarried in the room, he created you for levels of intimacy with a body of believers. And it's romance idolatry both inside and outside the church. Looking at you, Hallmark. Romance idolatry has tricked us into believing that our loneliness is exclusively a cry for romance, for sex. And that somehow or another, that type of physical intimacy is the only thing that can satisfy the relational loneliness that Peter often, people often feel. And I'll say this about Peter, and it's totally out in the open, and he uses it as a ministry opportunity. He's a, a, a gay Christian who's committed himself to a life of celibacy and teaching people about the value of that in the context of trusting and knowing that there is a biblical definition of marriage and because that's not his life he's chosen to be celibate as responsibility to it and has lived his life in community with other believers who support him in it romance and sex is not the only solution although the world would tell us it is to any type of loneliness that we feel but that because god has created each of us for a relational connection to other people it can be found in other places Singleness, if you continue to read in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, is a sacred calling. We ought to celebrate it in people's lives and support them in it. And marriage has a singular definition, although the world is really good at trying to flip that around and change it and tell us that other things are, in fact, marriage when they're not. 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9, Paul continues, Hey, to the unmarried and the widows, I say it's good to stay unmarried, as I do. Paul's talking about himself in this moment. If you can't control yourselves, it's okay. You should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion that distracts you from the thing that God has called you to do. And we talk about the idea of marriage and the way that it's defined and the way that it's being redefined by a progressive world that wants us to define it in other ways. Jesus himself tells this story. There's some Pharisees. They came to him in Matthew chapter 19. In order to test him, they asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason. And they say that in the context where only men could seek divorce and where men were seeking divorce for any and every reason and basically putting women on the streets. And they're trying to trap him and see what he says in the moment because Moses allowed divorce for specific reasons and they want to see if Jesus will go against the law. He responded, haven't you read that at the beginning, not as a portion of what the Mosaic law says, but right at the beginning in the garden that the creator made them male and female that part matters and he said for this reason a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they're no longer two but one flesh therefore what God joins together and we get this as a biblical definition of marriage that's present in both the old testament and also in the new testament according to the words of Jesus what God joins together let no one separate 
So not only did, did God set narrow boundaries for, for what love and marriage is, he also established guidelines within love and marriage for the way that we're supposed to live and the way that we're supposed to treat one another and the way that we're supposed to behave. I'm going to go into a passage of scripture right now that some of the women in the room are going to be like, wait a minute, hold on, what's he about to say? Because it says in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. First of all, in the context of marriage, it's a mutual submission. And oh, how this passage of scripture and what's about to follow has been used for the harsh treatment of women in so many historical contexts and even in cultural deviations. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. This is not an opportunity for men in the world to lord over women in any other way as we're not co-equal heirs with Christ. We are. But the ways that different cultures and societies have used words like this in a twisted way to make women feel inferior is wrong. But it does say, wives, submit to your own husbands, just in the context of that relationship, as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head. Now listen, underline that word because we're going to come back to a biblical definition of headship in a moment, and the women are not going to be mad at me, I promise. Because the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And we talk about the relationship that Christ has with believers in Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made. We could ask the question, in the relationship between Christ and the church, who gave up the most? Jesus. In the relationship between Christ and the church, who did it cost the most? Jesus. In the relationship between Christ and the church, who gains the most? The church. So you look at the unequal side of those relationships. It's not the women who are suffering. It should be the men who are sacrificing. And the world needs more examples of men who will. It says, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives just as the Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? To make her holy, cleansing by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands, in the same way that Jesus loves the world and was willing to die for the sins of it, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of that body. And then he quotes Genesis, just like Jesus quoted Genesis, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then he says this, it's a profound mystery. And I'll tell you this, marriage is a mystery to people in the room who've been married for 55 years. It's the people a mystery for the people in the room like me who've been married for 24 years. It's a mystery in the room to people who've been married for 14 years. It's a mystery in the room to people who are about to be married in four months. It's a mystery. But Paul clarifies it for us. He's like, this is a profound mystery. Yeah, marriage is wild. But what he's really talking about is Christ and the church. He's talking about the gospel, but it doesn't excuse marriages in this moment because he closes it out by saying, however, Although this is a metaphor for the church, what I'm really talking about is each of you should love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Dr. Emerson Egrich has a fantastic Bible study resource that we've used for years in the life of our church called Love and Respect. And it's a picture of, of the root biblical need for what men have in a marriage being respect and the root biblical need for what women value in a marriage being love. And he talks about the crazy cycle. 
And we see that crazy cycle played out in the world where the church is very judgmental on sins in the world and pathways in the world that don't directly lead to Jesus in the world. And because of the judgment, the progressive world or the unbelieving world is now rejecting even more the scripture that God gave us. And we see that rejection and that judgment and that rejection and that judgment. It happens in marriage too. Where because the husband says something that's a little bit unloving, the wife responds with, well, I'm going to be really disrespectful. And when she does that, the husband's like, well, that felt disrespectful. I'm going to respond by being even more unloving. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, that was really unloving. I'm going to respond by being the most disrespectful that I've ever been in my life, and you're not even going to know what hits you when I do. Like, there's this crazy cycle that a marriage can land on, and then it becomes a picture of the brokenness that's in the world rather than the forgiveness that's offered through Christ. And so what we're invited to is something different. And not only different in our marriages, but different in every single part of our lives where the way that we live with one another and the way that we live towards the world outside is a pattern of unlimited forgiveness where the great God of this universe wants nothing more than to present us blameless so that we can walk in a love that's good for us, that's designed for us, and enjoy all the blessings that come from his relationship with us. Now, I want to do a little tiny segue into the idea of headship because I don't want anybody to leave matter confused. There is a biblical understanding of headship that is worth examining, and we can't just do it from our modern lens. We can't look at the idea of headship as American people. We can't look at the idea of headship as white people. We can't look at the idea of headship as Western people. We can't look at the idea of headship as 2024 people. What we need to do is look at Paul's words that were written in the first century to Middle Eastern people to understand what he meant because when he said head, he meant head. He was using it as a metaphor, but maybe not the one that we think. Because in that context, what if? What if in that context, the idea of head wasn't a metaphor for governance, but instead the source of life? That's who Jesus is to us. And you look at the Old Testament world and the Middle East, medieval world and the Middle Eastern world and some things that are even happening today. What happens when a person's head gets chopped off? They lose their governance. No. They lose their lives. The husband isn't meant to be the governing entity over the wife and the household. He's meant to be a source of life and an ever-flowing stream of love and forgiveness an example of what Jesus is for us. You want to talk about governance? That's God the Father. But the example we're given is Christ the Son, and he was a sacrificial one. That's what we want to do. Harvard researcher and really smart person, Shanti Feldhahn, she's done a ton of research about marriage and relationships, and she says that the greatest threat to marriage isn't divorce, it's discouragement. And people do need encouragement. And they do need to know that there's hope. And they need to know that the storms can pass. And they need to know that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. She did continued research, and this is really a freebie for the day and an opportunity for me to say something that I always want to say. Do you know one thing that a couple can do to decrease their chances of divorce by 27 to 50 percent? Literally as high as 50 percent decrease in their chance of heading to divorce court. Attend church regularly. Studies have continued to show over and over and over again that the couples who stay together 
attend church together. It matters. This life that we desire, and ultimately the life that other people outside of this room desire, the intimacy that they long for, the hope that they desire, the companionship that they want, what we have to all realize is that it's only ever, happily ever after, when we have the right definition of happy. And ultimately, only when we get to the after. The whole Bible, ultimately, at least people's part in it, started with a wedding. God created them male and female, and the two became one flesh right there at the beginning, before the fall, before sin, before the need for forgiveness, Adam and Eve were one. Scripture started with a wedding. The New Testament, when you go back and begin with the book of Matthew, what did it begin with? An engagement, because we were going to have a wedding. And what does all of human recorded history, we just did a whole series on heaven about the end times and what we're all gearing ourselves up towards. And in Revelation chapter 19, we're towards the close of scripture. And what does it end with again? A wedding. The angel said to John, write this down. Blessed are those, that means happy. Who's happy? Married people, no. Who's happy? Any people who know that we've been invited to the greatest wedding that we will ever go to. Happy are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, Christ and his church. He said to me, these are the true words of God. It always matters in that context. The direction that we're heading and where we're going is ultimately heaven and the greatest picture that we've ever seen of what it means to be loved. Last week I quoted Rebecca McLaughlin, and she's written a bunch of books, and several that I'd happily recommend to you. One of them is called Secular Creed, and it's a really small book, and in a chapter that she's talking specifically about love, she tells a story of one time when she was watching TV. I have a lot of stories about when I was watching TV. One time she was watching TV, um, some kind of like animal planet earth kind of thing, and she saw a baby elephant with its mama and a whole herd of elephants. And so I did a diagram for you this week. There's the baby elephant. This is a boy elephant, which means that when he's a teenager, he's going to leave his mama anyway. All the mamas in the room went, oh. But if it's a girl elephant, if you have a daughter elephant, she'll stay with you forever and just become part of the herd. That's really celebratory. Okay, so she tells the story on planet earth where they're watching this whole documentary of elephants that are traveling across some sort of safari, and the baby elephant was separated from its mom in the herd by a sandstorm that came. So there they are, separated. And, and the good news was, is that baby elephants have an, like, just an uncanny ability to be able to find the scent of the pack, and specifically the scent of their mother. So the good news was that the baby elephant, after the sandstorm died down, was able to find his mother's tracks. But at the end of the documentary, the camera panned north, with the really sobering news that, yes, the baby elephant found its mother's tracks, but it was following them in the wrong direction. Oh, some of y'all are going to have a really bad day the rest of the day. <laughs> There's a whole world out there of people that are engaging in one relationship after another, looking for love and hoping that if they give themselves to another person that they'll finally find the thing that they're looking for. There's a whole world of people out there, we can call them LGBTQ plus whatever, and know that they are absolutely looking for so many wonderful things. Support, encouragement, connection, relationship, love, intimacy, validity. And as the camera pans out, what we realize is that the whole world is looking for really great things, but so very often moving in the wrong direction. God has a plan. And when we find it, we want to move towards it. 
and with no judgment and no hypocrisy. We want to be people that represent that plan so well that when other people find it, they move in the right direction too. This morning, I want to invite you to pray. And I invite you to do it in, in maybe a different way. Because I, I don't know everybody in the room, and I don't know every struggle in the room, and I don't know every challenge in the room. I don't know anybody who's engaged in levels of physical or sexual intimacy, um, and you're wrestling with whether or not that's right, or, or whether or not you can stop. There are couples in the room who are wrestling with the fact that they haven't had any sort of intimacy in a very long time. And they don't know what tomorrow looks like. Um, there's probably people in the room that are expressing, like Peter Valk, that same-sex attraction or, or some level of, of wanting the thing that you know Scripture so clearly says that you're probably not supposed to want and you don't know how to not want it anymore and you don't know what it looks like to be somebody who openly confesses, hey, I, this is me. And what I want you to know is that you found a church and that you found people who will love you dearly. At this time, I'm going to invite um, leaders in our church, men and women who are part of our prayer team and our ministry teams. They're going to move to the sides of the auditorium. And if today is a day when it would be meaningful for you to have somebody pray over you, put their hand on your shoulder and, and, and whisper in your ear a prayer to God on your behalf for whatever life looks like today, balcony. It's not weird if you want to come down the stairs and find somebody down here who will pray with you. We would love that. Um, these folks would love nothing more than to pray with you. Maybe that's because you're a couple and you're struggling. Maybe that's because you're an individual who just needs to know that there's a father who dearly loves you and has an incredible plan to use you in life. Regardless of where you find yourself today, we know um, that we are blessed and when people pray with us and for us. So during the song, as we close this morning, you can freely move. Um, they would love nothing more than to minister to you in this way. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for an ability to believe it and to trust it even when it's hard and it doesn't match with what we desire in life, when it doesn't match with what the expressions of are of it in the world, in our lives. Father, help us to know and believe that you're good and that you have our best interest at heart. You desire something more for us. Father, for every person in this room, regardless of their relationship status today, Father, I pray that they would feel the warmth of your arms around them in an incredible way, and maybe even for the first time today. Know that it's not about what they've done or how they've lived or who they've loved, but that God, you loved us. It's the most excellent way. We want to follow your path for our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family who may benefit from it. And make sure you subscribe to be notified so you never miss a sermon. If you want to learn more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.